Today's reading comes from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 27 to 31. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. You may be seated. Yeah, and as you're being seated, let me pray for us. Father, we've come this morning uh, not to hear uh, my opinions, uh, not to hear uh, the thoughts or the musings of fellow man, uh, but to hear from you, uh, to hear what you have to say to us, your people you love, that you sent Jesus to die for and to redeem. And so we come, Lord, eager to hear. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you are new or visiting, I want to add my welcome to Daniel's welcome. I also want to tell you something. It's typically our practice as a church each Sunday to kind of work verse by verse through each text. And so kind of unpack that. This week, Cam so lovingly read the text for us. We're actually not going to spend much time unpacking verses 27 to 31. We're actually going to take a bit of a break, a bit of a pause for a moment. And there are two words, two words I want us to discover. Two words I want us to understand. Two words I think are very important for us today. And those two words this morning are the words apostles and prophets. Apostles and prophets. See, one of the unique features of of 20th and 21st century Christianity is that in recent years, there has been an explosion, an explosion of people self-identifying as apostles and prophets in the church. And if you look at the history of the church, this phenomenon is actually quite unique. Everywhere we look these days, it seems we find an apostle there and a prophet there. They're all over the place. In fact, in 2017, uh, an article from Christianity Today described this phenomenon happening in the States in particular as combining multi-level marketing with, with Pentecostal signs and wonders, all under limited or no oversight because the leaders bear the name of apostles or prophets. Apostles and prophets. Some of you come from a tradition that recognize these two roles, these two things as offices in the church. And understandably, you're a bit confused this morning. And so if you'll be so gracious this morning to me, I want us to press pause on our First Corinthians series and make sure that we understand what Paul's talking about when he refers to apostles and prophets. And here's how we'll do it. First, big P prophets. Second, big A apostles. Third, little A apostles. And then fourthly and finally, little P prophets. Okay? I tried to make that as sort of succinct and as cute as I could, and that's the best I could come up with. We're going to unpack this together. Our journey begins this morning, actually well before Paul is in Corinth, and well before the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, and actually well before the ministry of Jesus in his incarnation and life here on earth. Our story begins this morning in the front half 
of our Bibles, we could say. It begins with big P, prophets. The letter of Hebrews, or to the Hebrews, says this. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. See, when God spoke to his people, God spoke through people. These people were called prophets. And sometimes, if you read your Bible, you know this, he gave prophets visions. Other times he spoke to them audibly. Still other times he spoke through dreams. God spoke to Israel at many times and in many ways through prophets. And if you read through your Bible, and hopefully you are this year joining us on our Bible reading plan, you find that prophets play a really central, important role in the life of Israel in the Old Testament. And so, for example, Abraham, you might have heard that name, is referred to as a prophet. Moses is referred to as a, a prophet. Deborah and Miriam are referred to as prophetesses. And in the reign of, of Saul and David and Solomon, we find a number of named prophets like Samuel and Nathan and a whole bunch of other unnamed prophets. This is to say nothing of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea. If we could summarize the role of prophets in the Old Testament, I don't think we can do much better than Wayne Grudem when he says this, the Bible scholar, Bible teacher, Wayne Grudem. He defines prophets in the Old Testament like this. The main function of Old Testament prophets was to be messengers from God sent to speak to men and women with words from God. Messengers from God sent to speak to men and women with words from God. In, in fact, I think in Ezekiel 3, the Lord himself gives a pretty good definition of a prophet when he says to Ezekiel, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. And whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them a warning from me. So, so prophets in the Old Testament were these, these spirit-empowered watchmen for the house of Israel. Their job was to call Israel back to worship Yahweh, to obey and observe the covenant, to warn them when they went astray or after other gods. And if they ignored the warning, their job was to pronounce judgment over Israel. And second, this is because prophets in the Old Testament, this is so important, spoke the word of God in the authority of God. They were quite literally, as the Ezekiel text shows us, God's mouthpiece. So what you'll find in, in Old Testament prophets are prophets not giving the main idea of what God had communicated to them or the coals notes of their revelation, but prophets would speak the very word of God to God's people. It's why you find prophets speaking often uh, for God in the first person. For example, they say things like, I will do this, or I have done that, or I'm not happy about this. The prophet is not speaking personally, but speaking for God, repeating God's very word, which means three, the prophet lived in the Old Testament, lived and operated in a world of high stakes, of high stakes, really high stakes. Because the prophet acted as God's mouthpiece, God's voice to Israel, there were a number of tests, in fact, for the authenticity of a prophet. Famously, we find in Deuteronomy 18, Moses speaking the word of the Lord, saying this, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, 
that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, and if the word does not come to pass or come true, probably better translated, or is true, like true about God, if the word does not come to pass or is true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of that. That's what the Lord says. Israel is to determine the legitimacy of the capital P prophet, whether he's speaking on his own or in the name of some other deity, on the basis of two tests. Really simple. One, is the thing the prophet's saying true? Or, or does it go against God's previously revealed will? Does it go against God's character? And, and second, if the prophet is prophesying judgment or something concerning the future, does this thing happen? Does it actually come to pass? And if not, that prophet is to be put to death, to be killed. Moses says that same prophet shall die. Now, if that seems harsh to you, as I'm sure it does to our modern ears, consider that we have come to know who God is through the pure and true testimony of the prophets. We have come to know who God is because of the pure and true and trustworthy testimony of the prophets. So, for example, if you believe this morning that God created the world, as, as I do, you believe that because God spoke through his servant Moses. And if you believe this morning that God is gracious and loving and just, and you encountered this gracious and loving and just God in the Psalms, it's because God spoke through his servant David, who Peter calls in Acts 2, a prophet. If you know today that God sees you in your pain, laments with you in your brokenness, and gives you hope when all seems lost, you probably learned that not only from Jesus, but from Jeremiah and Isaiah, and other prophets. Friends, God speaks today in what might be the neglected half of your Bible. Yes, the words of the Old Testament must be understood in light of Jesus. And yes, we might have to work a little bit harder because of the passage of time and cultural differences. But God is speaking to us today through his Holy Spirit in the words and the dreams and the visions of the Old Testament prophets. They are for us today. And as we come to the New Testament, we find that this office, it doesn't just disappear, it doesn't just sort of vanish, but is first fulfilled and then transformed. The office, of, the office of Big P Prophet is first fulfilled and then transformed. Let me show you what I mean. This is our second group of people. Big A Apostles. Big A Apostles. The author of Hebrews continues. He says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke, spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And now he adds this. But in these last days, right now, these days, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God spoke through the prophets, but God has definitively spoken to us through Jesus Christ, his son. 
In Jesus, God did not speak to his people through people. No, God became people. God became man. And so the author of Hebrews continues to say, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. To look at Jesus is to see God, to know God, to love and worship God the Father. To, to riff on a parable that Jesus himself tells in Matthew 21, it's like you worked in a vineyard. And you're used to the owner of the vineyard who's absent sending servants to, to update you on things, to collect fruit from you. Except one day the servants don't come. Instead, the, the owner's son comes. And the owner can describe to you workers exactly what he's like, can image for you workers exactly his character. He can speak with an authority that the servants, even these commissioned servants, can't. Jesus does this. And so, friends, let's just pause for another moment and ask, do you know that we have the words of the Son of God before us? That Jesus has spoken to us perfectly and without blemish, the very revelation of his Father. Do you know God is speaking to you today as we open his word and read his word with the same authority and clarity as he spoke to his people in his day? See, Jesus is the last big P prophet. Jesus perfectly fulfills the office of prophet. He's the last big P prophet. There is no one after him. He fulfills, completes, perfects the prophetic office. So instead of finding more big P prophets in the New Testament, what we find is that the counterpart to Old Testament prophets in the New Testament are the New Testament apostles, what the Bible calls apostles. Now, the word apostle in the Greek just really means simply messenger or sent one, messenger or sent one. But what we find, if we can parse it down even further, is that in the New Testament, there are two kinds of apostles, big A apostles and, and lowercase a apostles. And capital A apostles include Jesus' 12 disciples, plus Paul, and probably James, the brother of Jesus. So there's probably 14 big A apostles in the New Testament. These apostles, as I said, are the New Testament counterpart to Old Testament prophets. I'll show you. Like the prophets, these apostles were personally commissioned by God to bring God's message to the people. The capital A apostles, like the prophets, they wrote Scripture. They wrote God's word authoritatively. And, as was the case with the prophets, to reject the message or the teaching of the apostles, the big A apostles, was to reject God himself. New Testament apostles are the counterpart to Old Testament prophets. It should not surprise us then that when the New Testament wants to speak about God's authoritative once and for all speech to his people, that it uses the shorthand of the prophets and the apostles. Sort of shorthand that it uses. So for instance, in 2 Peter 3, we read this. Remember, Peter says, the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Prophets, apostles. In Luke 11, 
Jesus is talking to an expert in the law, it says. And he says to him that it was the wisdom of God to send to the Jewish people prophets and apostles. Prophets and apostles. And it's at this point I want us to return to 1 Corinthians 12. And make sure that we're tracking here. We believe that when Paul says, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, that in that instance, Paul is referring to these capital A, big A apostles. Big A apostles. And just so we are clear, it's really important, there are no more big A apostles. There are no more. There are no more. There are no more men and women whose authority is on par or greater than the apostolic message handed down to us. You cannot add to the apostolic message. Just so we're clear. There are no more men and women who are above the discipline of the elders or whatever church governance is employed. There is no biblical warrant today for one person holding unilateral authority to coerce a church to do his or her bidding. There are no more big A apostles. And the listing of apostles as first in our text is not permission for some narcissists to do whatever they want whenever they want. Apostles are first chronologically. They are first in time. If the New Testament church is a house, the apostles lay the foundation. They, they, they start. That happens first. In fact, Paul says explicitly this in Ephesians 2. He says to the Gentiles, listen, so then, you Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're part of the team. You're part of the church now. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And by the way, this is the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, before we look at the category of the New Testament prophets, referred to here in Ephesians 2 and in our text in 1 Corinthians 12, those he mentions as second, I think it's helpful to go on a bit of a detour. So this is a detour within a detour, okay? It's a detour within a detour. See, just as there are big P prophets... There are both big A apostles and little a apostles. Or those, if you're more comfortable, with apostolic gifting. See, in multiple places in the New Testament, Paul and others, they set the requirements for big A apostles as being those who have seen and been sent by the risen Christ. Big A apostles have seen and been sent by or commissioned by the risen Christ. However we find a number of instances in the New Testament where the language of apostle is applied to people where there is no explicit mention that they've seen the risen Christ. These people we could call small a apostles. Small a apostles, or those with an apostolic role, again, whatever you're more comfortable with, are those who have not been commissioned directly by the risen Christ. Those whose work has not necessarily been accompanied by great signs and wonders. These men, not capital A apostles, but lowercase a apostles, while having nowhere near the credentials and authority of the capital A apostles, nonetheless are gifted to preach the gospel, reach new areas, and plant churches. Small a apostles are, are pioneers. Pioneers for the gospel. The, the, the tip of the spear, as it will. 
And believe it or not, we find example of these small a apostles all over the Bible. And so in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 6, Timothy, remember Timothy? Timothy's a nice guy. Yeah, good guy. Timothy is referred to as an apostle there. Timothy, we know, is a gospel preacher involved in the early days of the church at Ephesus. Timothy, it's worth noting, was no superhero. He was not uh, special. He's, in fact, at times a timid man. I actually can relate to Timothy. I find a real connection to Timothy. We, we both had st- have stomach problems, right? Me and Timothy. This is, this is sort of my spiritual mentor of upset tummies. In, in 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, at this very letter, Paul includes Apollos in the apostolic conversation. Apollos, like Timothy, was a known proclaimer of the gospel. He moved from place to place, strengthening and potentially even starting new church plants. In Acts 14.14, Barnabas is called an apostle. Like Timothy and Apollos, Barnabas, we know, was set apart for the work of bringing the gospel to new areas with the hope of planting churches. All this to say, I think the New Testament paints for us a fairly clear picture of what this apostolic role or apostolic gifting could look like. But notice, when it comes to apostles today, there is no mention that these apostles can impart some special gift to others. There is no mention that these apostles have extra Holy Spirit juice to to give to someone else. There is no mention that they work outside of or above the authority of of the local church. That Timothy, Apollos, and Barnabas were only accountable to themselves. Instead, what we find in the New Testament, and this applies both to big A apostles and little A apostles, is that the ministry of the apostles is most clearly defined by, seen by, and in fact authenticated by suffering. To be an apostle in any age is to suffer. To be someone tasked with bringing the gospel to a new place with the hope of planting a church there is to, to suffer. History is littered with men and women who've experienced this kind of suffering. Listen to how Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 describes the apostolic ministry. And I say this just to contrast how perhaps this word apostle is being used today as this position of, of gaining influence and power and occasionally wealth. L- listen to how Paul describes the apostolic ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says this, to be an apostle or a servant of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness of the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. He says, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. To be an apostle in any age is to suffer, is to be misunderstood. Be cautious, friends. In fact, flee 
from anyone claiming an apostolic role or gifting who thinks they are above accountability, above the gospel of Jesus, and above suffering. Flee. Flee. Last group. We've seen big P prophets, big A apostles, little A apostles, and finally, little P prophets. Jesus was the last big P prophet. But the gift of prophecy did not end with Jesus. So imagine with me, if you will. You can close your eyes if you'd like. You can envision this scene. Let's go there together. The scene is Pentecost. There's a party in Jerusalem. Devout Jews from every nation under heaven have gathered in Jerusalem. And suddenly the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit and begin speaking in other languages. And suddenly Peter finds himself before a large crowd saying, the words of the prophet Joel are coming true today, right now, in your midst. The words of the prophet Joel are coming true. And he quotes Joel. He says this, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall what? Prophesy. See, the Old Testament prophets, they all look forward to the day when this gift of prophecy would be, we could say, democratized. Gone to all people when God's Spirit would be poured out on all His children, and the sign of His presence would be prophesying, wonders and signs, and people calling upon the name of the Lord to be saved. This is the age of the Spirit, enjoying right now a fullness and a measure of the Spirit that those who died before Pentecost longed to see, were immensely privileged in the truest sense, Christ City, to live when we live and where we live, living in the age of the Spirit, enjoying a fullness of the Spirit that many who trusted in Yahweh never got to see. And one of those manifestations, one of those signs that we're living in this age of the Spirit is that prophecy goes viral. Prophecy goes viral. In fact, Sam Storms, he's a pastor, teacher, he says this, a characteristic feature of the new covenant is that its members all have at least the potential to prophesy. Except New Testament prophecy, we learn, looks very different from Old Testament prophecy. See, just as Jesus transformed the role of priest from Old Testament to New, so that now we're a priesthood of all believers, so too is the office or function of the prophet transformed in Jesus, transformed by his spirit. And so what is New Testament prophecy? Or how, and how is it different than Old Testament prophecy? Let me begin by giving us a definition, and then we're going to unpack it. We can put that on the screen. Prophecy today, for us as a church, is simply this. is telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind for the upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation of, of the church. Telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind for the upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation of the church. I want to unpack this just really slowly. Prophecy is telling something from God. 
See, here, here's, I think, the crucial, important, can't-miss difference between Old Testament prophets and prophecy today. Prophets today, those who prophesy today, do not speak with the same divine authority. Not even close. And because prophecy today does not carry the same authority, prophecy needs to be tested and weighed. Considered and mulled over, we could say. So Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says this. He says, do not quench the spirit. What's one way you can quench the spirit? Well, do not despise prophecies. And he says this, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Later in 1 Corinthians 14, this is getting ahead of ourselves a bit, but Paul will say this, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh, consider, mull over what is said. Specifically, this weighing looks like weighing the words of the prophet against the revelation that has already been once and for all handed down to us by the big P prophets and the big A apostles. We weigh this revelation against Scripture. Does it line up with Scripture? Does it line up with God's once and for all revealed word? We also weigh these words in community, as a church. We appeal to wiser, more mature, more seasoned brothers and sisters in Christ. Weighing sometimes means chewing on the meat and spitting out the bones. And I think the best sort of case study of New Testament prophecy is found in Acts 21. If you have your Bibles, go to Acts 21 with me. We're going to spend a bit of time there. Just before Acts 21 and Acts 19, Paul is compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem. And so he begins the journey. And he arrives in Tyre. Not T-I-R-E, but T-Y-R-E. He arrives in the place Tyre. And there he meets some disciples. We pick up the story in verse 4. And having sought of the disciples, Luke writes, we stayed there for seven days. And listen. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So the believers at Tyre had received some prophetic word or, or vision or, or, or dream through the Spirit, it says. In fact, I think that word was quite likely a similar word to what the prophet Agabus will tell to Paul only a few verses later. Namely, Paul, only trouble awaits you in Jerusalem. Only persecution awaits you in Jerusalem. So Paul hears this, what you could say prophecy, from the believers in Tyre. And he basically says, like, thanks, but I'm going. And he goes. And they cry and they weep. He gets on the boat. He keeps on going to Jerusalem. Acts 21 continues. Next we find Paul lands in Caesarea. And there, we're told, there's Philip the Evangelist. And by the way, Philip the Evangelist has four prophesying daughters. So do with that what you will. Also, a man named Agabus comes from Judea. And in Acts uh, uh, sorry, 21, verse 11, it says this about Agabus and what he does. And coming to us, this is Agabus coming to the group. He took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. 
This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And if you keep on reading, once more, like what happens in Tyre, Paul does not heed Agabus' prophecy and continues to go to Jerusalem. But it's worth noting something else. Agabus, while being generally right in suggesting that Paul would find opposition, even jail time, Agabus also gets the details pretty wrong. The Jews in Jerusalem don't bind Paul and hand Paul over to the Gentiles. They, in fact, tried to kill Paul, and Paul is, in fact, rescued from the murderous mob by the Gentiles and then put in prison. So, so what's happening in Acts 21? Is Agabus truly a prophet? There's no indication in the text that he's a false prophet or an imposter or a detriment to the body of Christ. No, it seems clear to me that this New Testament gift of prophecy is not done now, today, infallibly or perfectly. Infallibly or perfectly. In Tyre and with Agabus, the problem was not with the revelation, but with the application. We could say with the human component. Prophecy given not infallibly, not perfectly. Unlike Old Testament prophets, prophets today can get it wrong. Get it wrong. Mix true revelations with their own thoughts or with bad pizza. Which means prophecy for us today must be something that we hear from God that needs to be weighed and tested and discerned. And sometimes it's rejected. Sometimes it's like, okay, thank you. And sometimes there's a part that's true and good, and the rest is, eh, I could do without. We weigh, we test, we discern. If we continue in our definition, we see that it's telling something from God spontaneously. Uh, this, I think, is what differentiates prophecy from, from the gifts of, of teaching, or words of knowledge and words of, of wisdom. So later, again, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's going to talk about the gift of prophecy in the church gathering, which is an interesting thing to talk about. And there he'll say that if it's apparent that a prophet has something to say, or he says in verse 29, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. But then he says in verse 30, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. And so the idea is that something spontaneously has been revealed to the person sitting amongst the congregation, amongst the church. Now, this is not to say that the gift of teaching cannot be combined with a prophetic. As we said a few weeks ago, gifts mix and, and mingle with each other, come up against each other, overlap with each other. They, they mix and, and they get together. Charles Spurgeon, he's the great 19th century preacher who would preach in this great hall in the middle of London. And he tells this story in his autobiography. He writes, while preaching in the hall on one occasion, I deliberately pointed to a man in the midst of the crowd and said, there is a man sitting there who is a shoemaker. He keeps his shop open on Sundays, and it was open last Sabbath morning. He took nine pence, and there was four pence profit out of it. His soul is sold to Satan for four pence. Imagine being that man. The man explains, I did take nine pence that day. And four pence was just the profit. But how we should know that, I could not tell. Then it struck me that it was God who had spoken to my soul through him. So I shut up my shop the next Sunday. At first, I was afraid to go again to hear him. Yeah, lest he should tell the people more about me. 
<laughs> but afterwards I went, and the Lord met with me and saved my soul. Spurgeon concludes, I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without ever having, without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea that what I said was right, except that I believed I was moved by the Spirit to say it. And so striking has been my description that the persons have gone away and said to their friends, come, see a man that told me all the things that ever I did. Finally, we conclude. We conclude our definition of New Testament prophecy with saying this. The purpose of prophecy today, church, please hear me. The purpose of prophecy in this church, in fact, in the church, is for the upbuilding, consolation, and encouragement of the church. That's its purpose. I want to end by asking pastorally, why do you think Paul had to exhort the Thessalonians not to despise prophecy? Why do you think he had to do that? The church in Thessalonica was by every measure an amazing church. If I could pick a New Testament church, Thessalonica, I'd go there. We're told that they received the word of God as if it was the very word of God. They received the apostolic message. We're told that it was a beautiful community filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. They endured affliction and persecution well, trusting God. But this church was suspicious and perhaps even tempted to despise the gift of prophecy. Why? Why? Well, we're not explicitly told, but I don't think you need to be a genius to guess. No gift can be used for damage in the church quite like the gift of prophecy. No gift is falsified with such traumatic repercussions as often and as callously as the prophetic. And some of you here this morning have had somebody prophesy over you in such a way it has made you say in your heart, maybe not out loud, but in your heart, I want nothing to do with that gift anymore. And you've been wounded. And you've been hurt. And I want to know, we, we love you. We, we see you. And we recognize the, the, the sensitivity we need to take around this. You know, the pastor, John Piper, he tells a story of a time when he was approached by a woman. So, so he's teaching through 1 Corinthians 12 as a young pastor, teaching his church to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. And so a woman says, okay, I have a hard word for you. And she writes it down on a piece of paper and gives it to them. And on that piece of paper, it, it reads uh, that, that Pastor John's wife, John, Pop John Piper's wife, is going to die in childbirth, giving birth to, to their daughter. And so Piper says he said something he forgets. He goes to his office and begins to weep. Doesn't know what to do with that. A few months later, when he welcomed a, a, a fourth boy into the world, it was obvious that this prophecy was not legitimate and the weight of it lifted. But, but he wisely concludes from this story that if you sense God has something for you to say to somebody, Offer it to them as a gift. Offer it to them as a gift. Don't thrust it at them like a demand. Don't say these are God's words because they're not God's words. 
nor is the listener bound to obey them as if they were God's words. And further, it's not as sexy, but be prepared for the prophetic to at sometimes be random scripture verses to give to people that you have no idea why you're giving it to them. Prophecy, like all the gifts, is not a weapon to be wielded. It's not a weapon to be used for status. It's not something to be used to embarrass others or demonstrate your spirituality or your superiority over them. That's what was happening in Corinth. Being prophetically gifted does not give you license to be pastorally irresponsible or insensitive. Friends, small p prophets are a gift to the church today. And by the way, the gift of prophecy is a gift that we're told that we should earnestly desire. We're commanded to earnestly desire because of its great potential to build up the body. I hope in our midst, the Lord raises up an army of young men and young women and old men and old women who speak prophetically for the upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation of the church. But it is not a weapon to be wielded for your own status and to wield power over others. Christ said, don't despise prophecy. Know its place. Desire it. Pursue it. This is a safe place to try and fail. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask as one body uh, that you would pour out by your Spirit a variety of gifts. Lord, that we would honor all those you've gifted to serve, encourage uh, the church, to, to further the mission of the church. But this morning, Lord, we especially pray that you would give us, as a church, this prophetic gifting. Lord, not so that we will seem spiritual, not so that our platforms will be elevated, but in such a way that first leads to your glory and your name being known in this neighborhood and in a way that builds us up, encourages us. So Lord, we, we realize that we're dipping our toes into something here that we're young in, new in as a church. Would you be gracious to us, kind and merciful to us, and would you pour your spirit in abundance on us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church, East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.